0: The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. Well, let's go to God's Word together. As I said, for those of you who haven't been with us on a regular basis, we do have some visitors today. Thank you so much for being with us today, visitors here for different reasons, some for the first time, just so you know in the context. We're going through the book of Acts in the New Testament all 28 chapters, we're now kind of just about in the middle, finishing up chapter 13. True story, we've learned a lot. This is true history. It's been a blessing. It shows how the church was commissioned by Jesus, what were they were supposed to do, when, how the church started, how the church grew, starting in Jerusalem, and mushroomed from there with God's blessing as the gospel went out to the Jews first. And then it extended beyond Jerusalem and Judea into Samaria. And then it began to trickle out to non-Jews, Gentiles. And now we're seeing the gospel go to the uttermost parts of the world through the ministry of the Apostle Paul. That's where we're at in the book of Acts. Like I said, we're about in the middle of the book of Acts. If you wanted to divide the book of Acts, it is a long book. It's a narrative. Uh, it, It is loaded with information, especially when... You've got these missionary journeys and a lot of names of cities and people. So it's hard to remember all the activity that goes on. But just big picture, you could divide the book of Acts into two major parts. Chapter 1 through 12, the ministry of Peter to the Jews in Jerusalem. And then part 2 would be chapter 13 through 28, the ministry of Paul to the Gentiles beyond Jerusalem from the hub of Antioch in Syria and not Jerusalem. So that's a big picture overview. As far as the time frame, Acts 1 through 12 covers when Jesus ascended about 29 A.D. to just about the early 40s. And then 13 through 28 picks up with the first missionary journey of the Apostle Paul in about 45, 46 A.D., and the rest of the book of Acts ends in chapter twenty-eight, near the time of Paul's death in the early sixties. So that's just a big picture uh, to help you. We are now in the middle of Paul's first missionary journey. And by way of summary, to set the context, last week Paul preached a sermon. It's one of the longest sermons recorded in the book of Acts. It's the first real extended sermon recorded by the Apostle about the Apostle Paul, recorded by Luke in detail it was quite lengthy uh, we went over his sermon last week that he preached in a synagogue chapter 13 and 14 is one journey we call it the first missionary journey paul and barnabas are the main missionaries they had john mark with them when they started john mark he was a younger guy barnabas's younger cousin and the trip apparently got difficult for him after all they traveled like 170 miles from Antioch through the rough Mediterranean Sea to the dangerous island of Cyprus and traveled over 100 miles through the island of Cyprus, ministering, having to contend with lions and tigers and, yes, you guessed it, bears. Oh, my. And then they traveled another 100 uh, miles off of that uh, western end of Cyprus up going north to the bottom of Asia Minor that we know is kind of modern-day Turkey today, also southern Galatia. And they landed there, and that was very rigorous. They went through a couple of cities, and then they headed north for another 120 miles to a very dangerous city to get there, and that's Antioch, Pisidia, and that's where we are today. That's where Paul preached the sermon. And to get there, they had to go through rough terrain and dangerous, jagged mountains, horrible weather. But before they made that rigorous, difficult trip, john that's when John Mark bailed. He did not leave on good terms. We pointed that out last week. John Mark, he left. He deserted. It was a term used of demons when they left bodies they were possessing as they were shrieking and not leaving on good terms. So John Mark left like a demon. So it was not good terms. We're going to see that, that he didn't leave on good terms later, especially in chapter 15 coming up. So here's Paul, Barnabas. We don't know if they have any assistance with them. Maybe they're picking up some disciples along the way. But for the most part, it's just the two of them. And they stop at a major city. Antioch of Pisidia, it's called. And this is where we pick up in chapter 13. They cover 1,200 miles on this journey over the course of two years. They stop and minister in at least eight cities, probably more, way more than that. Luke stops and highlights certain cities because those cities are significant cities. Usually Roman colonies, lots of people, or maybe a significant event happened there, like Paul was almost killed. So this stop here is very significant, Antioch of Pisidia, because it shows the typical reaction Paul is going to get whenever he goes into a Gentile city to preach the gospel, especially if there's a synagogue in that cosmopolitan Gentile city. And so everything that happens in this city is typical for the next 20 years of Paul's ministry as he goes from city to city. It's paradigmatic. It's a model of how it would be for Paul. Um, By the way, where Paul is now, it's called Antioch of Pisidia. Like I said, it's in where we would say is Asia Minor today or modern Turkey. According to the Bible, it's also southern Galatia. That's significant. So you could literally read the book of Galatians, and that book was written to these people. Now, Galatia is not a city. Like when Paul wrote the letter to the Ephesians, that was a city. So that was a more narrow group of people. When Paul wrote the letter to Galatia, the Galatians, that includes many cities. So it includes Antioch and a couple of Iconium and other cities he's going to visit as well. So that's a region. So it's a little different. But no doubt when Paul wrote Galatians just a year after this missionary trip was completed, he's writing to these people in Antioch. And he's writing mostly to Gentiles who embraced the gospel while he was there. And it's beautiful, especially if you read... Galatians 4, and he gets a little biographical, and he's letting them know. A year later, he went there, and a year after he gets home, he's writing them to see how they're doing, and he's actually reprimanding them for some things. They've, they've gotten out of line, and he has to set them straight, like a father disciplining his children, yet at the same time, he's got great love and compassion for them, and he gets very personal in chapter 4, and he says, Remember when I was with you, when you didn't know the, the gospel, and I brought it to you? And you welcome me, you receive me openly, even in my pathetic condition. He was sick when he showed up with the Galatians. And they, even though it was a gruesome disease that he had, some think it was some kind of gross eye disease or malaria, they welcomed him anyway, and they embraced him. And Paul's reminiscing, saying, thank you for doing that. Thank you for loving me despite my gross physical condition because you loved to receive the word of God. So that's just a little personal touch and picture and inside behind the scenes of actually what's going on here in Acts uh, 13 and 14. So that's where we are. So southern Galatia in the city of uh, Antioch of Pisidia, chapter 13. Uh, Paul preached a sermon. It was a long one. Uh, started at verse 16, chapter 13, verse 16. And he concludes the sermon in chapter 13, verse 41. We went over that whole sermon last week. It was a lot of stuff. And Paul was preaching the sermon in a, a Jewish synagogue, As a visitor, he's hundreds and hundreds of miles away from Jerusalem, his home, in a foreign country. He's never met these Jewish synagogue leaders before, probably. They don't know Paul and Barnabas, only maybe by reputation, because Paul was a significant Jewish leader in Jerusalem, trained in the school of Gamaliel. So no doubt these synagogue leaders in this Greek hellenistic roman colony where there's a synagogue these jews up there they probably know saul of tarsus by way of reputation and so the leaders of that synagogue realized wow this is saul of tarsus there is no greater scholar of the scriptures let's have him speak and so they let paul saul preach and the first part of the sermon they said amen and amen because from chapter 13 verse 16 To verse 22, all Paul did was recount the history of the Old Testament. And the Jews there were, amen, amen. Yes, we're God's elect. And yes, God set us free from the Egyptians. And so they're given, and David is our great king. And they're given all these hearty amens. But Paul is weaving throughout the utter rebellion and disobedience of Israel. All the while God is doing these wonderful things for Israel. They continue to be disobedient, hard-hearted. Yet God continues to love them. Provide for them, protect them, lead them. They are secure in their relationship with him. And Paul gives an accurate accounting of the entire Old Testament, and the Jews are welcoming and saying, amen, amen. Then there's a dramatic change, because at the end of the chapter, chapter 13, these same Jews, verse 50, it says, they chased Paul and Barnabas out of town, booted them out, get out of our city. Wow, how did that happen? They get there as strangers, and they're invited to be the main preachers of the day. They're saying all these hearty amens as he's going through the Old Testament history. And one week later, on a Sabbath day on Saturday, they chase Paul out of town and banish him from the city. And their emotions were, verse 45, they are filled with jealousy. Or verse 46, they are filled with jealousy. They are filled with rage. Verse 45. So what happened in these eight days where they welcomed Paul initially with great enthusiasm and expectation, and by eight days later, they're filled with jealousy, rage, blaspheming against him, and also personally insulting him, and then kicking him out of town? What happened? What did Paul say? What did Paul preach that made them so angry? Well, I can tell you. Uh, Like I said, the first part of his sermon was about Old Testament history, where they said, amen. Then what Messed up everything in their mind was the middle of the sermon in verse 23 when uh, Paul said, From the descendants of this man, David, according to promise, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. Uh Uh-oh. You said Jesus in a Jewish Orthodox synagogue? Not only that, he began to expound about Jesus. Jesus. Even referring to the fact that Jesus fulfilled Old Testament prophecy, that Jesus was deity. Oh my, that is blasphemous. And to top it off, the worst thing Paul could do at the very end of his sermon in verse 38, he said to these Jews in the synagogue, Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, fellow Jews, fellow Israelites, that through Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Now, the Jews knew rightfully so according to their Old Testament scriptures that God is the only one who could give forgiveness. Only God, only Yahweh, only the Lord, only Elohim. And here's Paul telling them there is now forgiveness available through this man, Jesus. That incensed them, that was blasphemous in their mind because no doubt most of them were thinking that Jesus was just a man. That God, or Paul tried to show through Scripture that Jesus was more than a man. He was the Messiah. He was the God-man. Even their Old Testament Scriptures taught that, but they didn't get it. So that infuriated them that forgiveness could be through this man, not only through this man, this man who was hung on a tree. And in their Bibles in Deuteronomy, it says, Cursed is anyone hung on a tree. You're trying to tell us a man forgives sins? Not only a man, but a man who was hung on a tree as a criminal, and God's word says anyone hung on a tree is accursed. So this was baffling. And worst of all, verse 39, and through this Jesus, Paul says, everyone who believes is freed from all things. Everyone who believes in this Jesus is freed from all sin. Okay, that's it. We've had it because they knew the implications. There were Gentiles in the synagogue listening to this message who were interested and intrigued with Jewish religion but didn't go all the way and refused to get circumcised to become full-blooded Jews. And yet Paul is telling these uncircumcised Gentiles, you have the same access to heaven and forgiveness of sins as these circumcised Jews. In their mind, that was heresy, that was blasphemy. How in the world can you be saying this, Paul. Through Jesus, everyone who believes is freed from all things. And then here's the worst. This was the final nail in the coffin at the end of verse 39. From which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. That was the worst thing Paul could have said to narrow-minded, legalistic, myopic-thinking, traditionalist, orthodox Jews. Paul is telling them, you can't be saved through the law of Moses. Obedience to the law of Moses will not earn any forgiveness of sins. But that is what they believed. That's what they taught. That's what they perpetuated. That's what their teachers taught them. And that's what they passed on in their local synagogue. And that's why the attendance in their local synagogue was minimal. They're just passing on man-made tradition. They are not passing on supernatural, life-changing, relevant truth from God Almighty. It is legalistic, man-made religion. And it wasn't appealing to a lot of people because it didn't make a difference. It wasn't efficacious. It didn't change people's lives. It couldn't help them. But all the legalists were gathering there every Saturday, perpetuating their Legalism upon one another. Reinforcing their legalism. And Paul undermines it with this statement. You know what? The law of Moses that you've been trusting upon your whole life. That your parents have taught you. That you've been practicing in the synagogue. That you hear every Sunday taught. in Or Saturday in the synagogue. Being taught week after week after. That will not save you. Only Jesus Christ. And his work. Your works can't save you. The law of God. The law of Moses. Can only condemn you for being a sinner. That's what Paul said. And again this infuriated most of the leaders of this Jewish synagogue. Now there were some there who found this refreshing. Wow, this Paul, he speaks with authority he speaks like no other. He is quoting the word of God and illuminating it so that I can understand it. I never understood the significance of Psalm 16 until this man spoke. I never understood what Isaiah 55 meant until this man explained it to me. I never understood the implications of Psalm 2 until Paul brought it to us and referred it to the Messiah. And it's fulfilled in Jesus and that he offers forgiveness of sin. And it's not by works, but it is by faith and through grace, through his sacrifice. Amen. And they are getting excited. So these, there are many Gentiles in the synagogue. They are getting excited. There are actually some Jews in the synagogue hearing this message, that it is new, that it is providing hope. It's not legalism that smothers and heaps guilt. So that's the context. And that's how he concludes the sermon, is by the, the offering. He concludes by just the simple gospel. There's salvation of sin for anybody that believes through Jesus Christ, the crucified and risen Lord. And then he gives a warning. Now that you've heard the message, don't harden your heart. If you reject this message, God's wrath abides on you. You know, that message is still true today. We preach the gospel. We talk about Jesus. He's the only solution. He's the only name to heaven. He's the only way you can be right with God. Through Jesus Christ is the only way you can have forgiveness of sin. We preach it week after week after week here. The offer still stands that anyone that would soften their heart and believe and cry out to Jesus the Savior, but at the same time, Paul's curse still stands. Anybody that hears that, understands it, willfully rejects it. The wrath of God abides on them. That is a frightening prospect. Scripture says it's better that you had never heard because you're now, you're now accountable. And you bring judgment upon yourself. So that's how Paul finishes his sermon. And so now we're going to look at 42 to 52, and we're going to see, whenever you preach the gospel or talk about Jesus, many of you have experienced this, out in the world, in a crowd, whenever you openly talk about Jesus, you get what? You get a reaction. Isn't it fun? You actually usually get many different reactions. You always get a reaction. And that's what we have with we have many reactions to the clear gospel as it is explained. And I delineate Six different reactions. So let's go ahead and look at the reactions from the crowds and the the people in the synagogue to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Reaction number one is intrigue, intrigue. That's true. All throughout the Gospels, uh, there were people. Jesus preached the gospel. He had massive crowds following him throughout three years. Why? They were, they were intrigued. Wow, this man speaks as no other man speaks. Says Matthew seven. This is different. This is unique. This is intriguing. Paul, when he preaches, we'll see later. He, he goes before. Leaders, and sometimes they'll say, uh, whether it's Herod or somebody else, and Paul will preach and say, hmm, this is, this is very interesting. This is intriguing. I'd like to hear you again sometime, maybe next week. And they're, they're fascinated about it. So the Christian message is intriguing because indeed it is unique. It's unlike any other worldview. Every other worldview and religion out there has the same bottom line presuppositions and themes. That you can work your way to heaven. You can work your way to Godhood. At the end of your life, is your goody pile taller than your baddie pile? Then you you might squeak in. If you boiled it down, and Christianity says nope, has nothing to do with your goody pile or your baddie pile. Has nothing to do with what you do or I do. It has everything to do with what God has done on our behalf. And it's not that humans can become God; it's that God became a human. And it's by grace. Through faith. That's why it's intriguing. So we're going to see in Acts 17. He's telling these total pagans, Paul is, this message and resurrection. And they're like, wow, we've never heard this, man. What, what have you been drinking, Paul? What have you been smoking? I mean, literally. You are crazy. Loco en la cabeza. Wait, no, they spoke Greek. My bad. But they did. They called him a crazy man. Crazy man. And that's what a lot of people in the world think about the Christian message. It's crazy. But many are intrigued. Let's go ahead and look at it. Preaches a sermon, uh, finishes his sermon there in the synagogue. Verse forty-two is Paul and Barnabas were going out. Okay, service is over. Their hour and a half long synagogue service. They're about to be dismissed. The people kept begging. These are people that were in the synagogue and had heard the sermon. These people, the people kept begging. That these things might be spoken to them next Sabbath. These are the people that were intrigued. This included Jews in the synagogue, but also Gentiles who were considering being, becoming converts, but they were allowed to be in the synagogue. And they heard this and they were intrigued. They're just, wow, this is amazing stuff. And it seems so simple and wow, what, how, what a message of hope and grace. And it's not about legalism after all. He's quoting from the Old Testament. And none of our Jewish leaders in the synagogue contradicted him or told him he was wrong. And they didn't stone him and they didn't shut him up and silence him and kick him. They let him preach. Some of them even said amen. And they wanted more. It created a hunger for those that God was wooing and softening and drawing and removing the deception that sin and Satan had put before their spiritual eyes. So there's a hunger there. This is this is the prelude to a revival. And he is just thronged by the people from the synagogue and they're smothering Paul as he's leaving in Barnabas. And it says they were begging. Oh, you need to teach again. You can't leave town. How long are you here? How can we hear this again? Can we come to your house? Where are you staying? At a minimum, can you come back next week to the synagogue, please? And teach us again. So apparently that was the arrangement. Okay, we'll come back next week. Do part two. So they're looking at that with great anticipation, begging them that these things might be spoken to them the next Sabbath. So apparently that was agreed upon. Verse 43, now, when the meeting of the synagogue had broken up, many of the Jews and the God-fearing proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas. See, they followed them, thronging around them, who, speaking to them, were urging them to continue in the grace of God. So Paul's actually answering their question, interacting little Q&A as they walked. Yes, that's right. This is called the grace of God. Yeah, true. Good question. And they're beginning to see the light. And they're beginning to understand and comprehend the implications. And Paul and Barnabas are encouraging. Yes, you're on the right track. Keep going down that track. Keep going. That's Yes, that is what I was saying. That was what I was trying to emphasize. Come back next Sabbath. We'll continue our teaching. So there was intrigue. And it's very positive. Continue in the grace of God, verse 44. And so the next, so these people that are all excited, and a lot of these are Gentiles who were in the synagogue. They went and told their family. They went and told their friends. They went out into the neighborhood, and they, they were just talking about, man, you got to come next Saturday to the Jewish synagogue, and there are these guest preachers, and this Paul guy is amazing. You're going to love it. And he's a master teacher, and he's talking about this, this Jesus, who and this guy who actually died, and get this, rose again from the dead. And ascended and is in heaven now and offers forgiveness of sin to anybody no matter how bad you have sinned. And it's a free gift of his grace. It is awesome. You, you gotta come hear it. Never heard anything like it. This is what happened because (laughs) verse 44 says the next Sabbath. Nearly the entire city assembled around the synagogue to hear, not Paul, to hear, not legalism, to hear, not the tradition of men, to hear the word of the Lord. They knew this was supernatural truth. They knew this was divine revelation. They knew this was from God. This could make a difference. This could change lives. By the way, that phrase, the word of God is used four times in this passage. It wasn't, oh, these great entertainers came to our church. You wouldn't believe the slideshow and the theatrical presentation and and the liturgical dancers were awesome. And we don't have to pay for it. It's a free show. No, didn't have any of this. Zero technology, just truth. Truth spoken. That's it. There is nothing more powerful in the world. The word of the Lord. So they knew what they were intrigued by. So that's the typical response is many times in a crowd is there is intrigue. You don't know how it's going to go, right? Could be a hardened heart, a soft heart. We don't know. It could be one of the parables of the four soils and four different hearts. And only God knows. And sometimes through time he reveals that. But we still go and pursue that that desire and answer the questions and give the fullness of gospel and and pray on their behalf and be a godly example to them and love them and let god worry about the end and eternal results and that's the goal of paul and barnabas no doubt well intrigue and positive responses and positive questions and enthusiasm isn't always the response as you know there's also number two and that's the response of criticism criticism negativity Why is there criticism to the gospel? Why is there criticism and just guttural uh, emotional hatred and reactions to just the name of Jesus? That's how powerful Jesus' name is. Named. Just his name is loaded. Just his name is a divine revelation. Just his name is divine, comforting, threatening truth. The name Jesus means God saves. That's why it's so threatening. Some people welcome a savior and some resist. They don't want a savior. They don't want a judge. The name Jesus is offensive. And that's what happened here. Verse 45. But, see there's the contrast. There's all this enthusiasm in the city. Mostly, by the way, the whole city means they were mostly Gentiles. They were non-Jews. They didn't go to the synagogue. And the Jewish leaders at the synagogue saw their entire synagogue smothered with the entire city of Gentiles, most of whom are involved probably in pagan religions. They don't want anything to do with the synagogue or legalistic Judaism. And the Jewish leaders are seeing this and they're, they are disgusted. They are threatened. They're angry. They're jealous. Verse 45. But when the Jews, you would think the Jews would be all excited. I mean, the entire city comes to their synagogue. That's where this event is going to happen. Part two. In the synagogue, guest preacher Paul Pass the collection plate. And the, the crowd is even outside the synagogue. It's so huge. Well, all pass the collection plate out there, too. Welcome one. Welcome all. No, they don't want to welcome anybody. They're threatened. When the Jews saw the crowds, instead of being excited and supportive, they were filled with jealousy. Filled with means controlled by. They were controlled by jealousy. Paul and Barnabas were potentially stealing um, their converts that they already had, stealing future converts to the way they do things, messing up their system, their routine, their tradition, undermining their power. So it's an utter threat. They don't care about human souls. They don't have shepherds' hearts. They were filled with jealousy, and they began. And then they got personal. They began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. Now, blaspheming uh, almost always refers to attacking God and his character and his truth, and they were probably very well could be, have been blaspheming Jesus. Who is this Jesus? Yeah, we heard about this Jesus from headquarters in Jerusalem, from our leaders, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, and the Pharisees. They told us about that Jesus. They had to round up your fellow apostles and throw them in jail and whip them to shut them up. Because he's heretical. It's a cult. That's, that could very well, but that's what blasphemy means. It's, it's an attack on God and his character. So they're attacking Paul and Barnabas personally and their theology and their savior and the hope of the world. And they aren't shy about it. They're probably shouting. At, they don't have microphones. They're just shouting out loud. They're going into the crowd, pushing the crowd around, pointing fingers at Paul and uh, Barnabas. Riling up the crowd, trying to create a riot. By the way, they canceled speaking engagement number two at the synagogue. They didn't let Paul and Barnabas go back in there to finish their sermon. Criticism. Why? Because the gospel is threatening. Uh, I get a kick out of every time like John MacArthur, my pastor, and or Franklin Graham is on the television to do it like CNN or one of those news shows. And because inevitably, they're going to talk about Jesus. And as soon as they talk about Jesus, either the uh, the one interviewing them or the panel uh, or the colors in the show, they just get irate. Why did you let this kook on the television show? This John MacArthur, or this Franklin, I'm talking about Jesus. It happens every time. As a matter of fact, I don't know if you saw the inauguration or not, and it doesn't matter who you voted for. But Franklin Graham said a very short prayer and he said it in Jesus name. It's a great prayer. All I did was read from 1 Timothy 2, read a couple of verses that were totally appropriate, and then he prayed in Jesus' name, and that just, uh, (laughs) infuriated people to no end, who were blogging in, writing articles, condemning him, all the, most of the well-known TV shows mocking, uh, Franklin Graham. What does he think this is, a Christian nation? What does he think Jesus, what what does he think Jesus is the only way to heaven? Well, Yeah. But sinners, they don't want to hear that. So, I mean, so you can still, they're still firing these things out every single day. Maligning Franklin Graham as though he's the most evil person on planet earth because, what did he do? He read two verses from the Bible and he prayed in the name of Jesus. And that's what you see here. That's what happens. The gospel brings peace or it divides. That's all there is to it. Two reactions. Uh, what else? Well, we have the response from, or the reaction now to the gospel from Paul and Barnabas themselves, based on the reactions of other people. So they are a model in terms of how we should respond to the responses of people when we preach the truth. So that's number three. How do they respond? They respond with boldness. I mean, you can cower and be a coward and run away and freak out and do like John Mark and desert your team or whatever. You know, we're human. We're frail. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So we're all susceptible to that reaction. But Paul and Barnabas don't cower in fear right now. Very intimidating, actually. These are some of the most influential people in this city who are the leaders at the synagogue who are condemning them publicly, humiliating them publicly. And look at how Paul and Barnabas respond. They respond in boldness. Paul, verse 46, Paul and Barnabas, they spoke out boldly. See that? They spoke out boldly. I mean, they spoke out loudly, clearly with volume so that the whole crowd can hear and also over the voice of the Jewish leaders who were condemning them. So Paul, and they're not going to let them spew incessantly their condemnations and blasphemies. No, excuse. No, excuse me. Excuse me. What you're saying is not true. What you are saying is misrepresenting the truth. So let me reply to that. No doubt. That's probably what Paul did. Paul was not a wimp. He was not a sissy. You can imagine what his personality. He was a strong personality. He was that way when he was not saved. He was totally courageous. He was fearless. And when God saved him, he still had that same personality. He's he's kind of like a contrast to John Mark right now. He's very different than Barnabas. That's why they're a good team. They probably complement. Uh, Barnabas, very mild-mannered and compassionate. And and and, and Paul is just in terms that you can just see it in terms of his personality. And that's necessary. God needs all those personalities to fulfill his mission, to complement the work. And so Paul and Barnabas, they're a beautiful complement, but Paul, notice he's mentioned first, Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, it was necessary that the Word of God, notice the Word of God. We didn't make this stuff up. I quoted from the Bible. I taught from the Old Testament accurately. You even said amen to my Old Testament teaching. I showed clearly with witnesses, which is the standard of verifying truth. According to your Old Testament, the Mosaic law with multitudinous witnesses that Jesus is indeed the fulfillment of your Old Testament. That's what Paul's saying. The word of God It's the word of God. It's the word of God. It's not the word of man, the word of God. It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you Jews first, you unbelieving Jews who mock us. Now, we had to preach to you Jews first. That was by God's commission. That was by God's design. That was by my calling, according to when he got saved in Acts chapter 9. Jesus told him when he got saved, Paul, I am calling you to the Gentiles. But he also revealed to him "But you go to the Jews first, Jerusalem, then the uttermost parts of the earth. And Paul was going to obey that. The gospel saves. It is the power of God to the Jew first, also to the Greek. And that was Paul's model. I will go to the Jews first. It was appropriate for me to come into this pagan city. Yet there is a Jewish synagogue. And so in honor to God and to you as the nation of Israel called and elect by Almighty God, you needed to hear this message first about your own Messiah found in your own scripture. So it was appropriate that me and Barnabas talk to you first about Jesus. But I'm sad you didn't respond the right way. It was necessary the word of God be spoken to you, Jews, first. Since, But since you repudiate it, and as a result, judge yourselves unworthy for eternal, apparently you don't want eternal life. Apparently you've made it clear. You don't want forgiveness of sin. Wow. That's your choice. Then now we're we're turning to the Gentiles. The Jew first, also to the Greek. Now we are going to the Gentiles. We are going to the Gentiles now. Now imagine, the, the whole city is around the synagogue and the whole city is there. Most of them are Gentiles. And Paul said, and we went to you first. Now we're going to the Gentiles. And the crowd just went, hip, hip, hooray! They did. I'm not making it up. Paul quotes an Old Testament verse to validate it. Verse 47, for so the Lord has commanded us in the book of Isaiah, chapter 49, verse 6. God said, I have placed you Israel and the Messiah and his spokesperson as a light to the Gentiles. So we're only doing what God has commanded us to do in his work in order that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth and the crowd. They just go crazy. That's number four. Salvation. What's another reaction to the gospel? Salvation. The gospel is God's only solution. Verse 48. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing. Man, it was loud. This is a huge crowd. They were rejoicing. They were praising God. They were shouting out loud. They were talking with one another. Began rejoicing. And what were they doing? They were glorifying not Paul and Barnabas. They were glorifying not the demise of the legalistic Jewish leaders. They are glorifying and honoring the word of the Lord. Upholding biblical truth. What a celebration, man. This is is a revival. They began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord and the word of the Lord, specifically the message about Jesus, who he is. Jesus, the Messiah, the only savior of the world, the God man, the God who became man in Jesus Christ, the man who lived 33 years without ever sinning, who willingly went to the cross and offered him as a sacrifice himself as a sacrifice for sinners and asked God the father to pour his full fury of wrath upon him as a substitute. Who died in accordance with scripture, raised again from the dead, ascended on high, reigns as the savior of the world. That's what they are rejoicing about, that message. You can't get saved by works, you can't get saved by the Mosaic law, you don't have to get circumcised to be saved, that was huge. You just had to know who Jesus was, acknowledge that you're a sinner, that he's the only one that can save you, go to him, cry out for salvation, believe in him, exercise faith by grace, And that's instantaneous, eternal life, salvation, adoption into the family of God. That's what they were rejoicing about. The first time in their lives that many of them have ever heard a message of true hope. Verse 48. So they are rejoicing. They are glorifying the word of the Lord. Get this. And as many as had been a point, actually, the Greek text says and is and they believed. They believed, but. The English version says, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life, believed. Wow. That is a controversial verse. That is hard to understand. I'll read it again. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life, What does that mean? As many as been, had, had been appointed to eternal life by God. And I'll add Ephesians 1 4 on there. I'll add what Jesus said in the Gospels, I chose you, you did not choose me. I will add 2 Thessalonians there, I will add 1 Peter 1 there, I will I will keep going. I will add Romans chapter 8 there, verse 28 and 29, to clarify what it means here. And as many of these people, as as, as many of these sinners as had been appointed by Almighty God before the foundation of the world, before they even existed, when God appointed them to eternal life, those were the ones who believed when they heard the gospel. Wow, that is profound. That is mind-boggling. That seems like a contradiction. How is that possible? My answer, I don't know. It's just in the Bible. So election is true, is what I'm trying to say. Election is undeniably taught in the Bible. It is undeniably true. God is the author of salvation. He initiates salvation. Jonah 2 says that salvation is from the Lord. Sinners run from a holy God. Sinners are blinded by their own sin. Sinners are blinded, blinded by deception from Satan so they can't see truth. Sinners are spiritually dead and can't respond to God. Sinners can't save themselves. They need an outside supernatural force to intrude and save them. And God uses the truth of his supernatural word to do that. He also uses the power of the Holy Spirit to do that. And he also uses the prayers of the saints to do that. But they did believe. So God elects people before the foundation of the world to be saved. That is God's perspective. That's the eternal perspective. So, I mean, Pastor Cliff, since God elects people, does that mean humans don't need to do anything in order to be saved? Or to rephrase it another way? Does a person have to do anything to be saved? Or can a person do anything to be saved? And I've heard Bible teachers say, yeah, no. Humans don't need to do anything to get saved, and humans can't do anything to get saved. When, well, that's not really being spoken with precision. Do, do people, sinners, need to do anything to be saved? They're they're elected before the foundation of the world. But do you need to do anything to be saved? Did I need to do anything? The answer is yes. So I went through the Bible and I counted. I think I wrote down 23 different things people need to do to be saved. You need to repent and then you will be saved. Believe in the gospel and you will be. So you have to believe in order to be saved. You have to follow in order to be saved. You need to turn from idols to be saved. You need to eat, and you will be saved. You need to drink, and you will be saved. You need to come, and you will be saved. And on it goes. So I came up with 24 imperatives from Almighty God telling a sinner, here's what you need to do to be saved. Yes, election is true. Yes, God is sovereign. But God never saves anyone against their own will. People are saved in conjunction with their true volition. Which, by the way, has been prepared by the Spirit of God and the truth of God's gospel and his word working on the hearts of people. I don't earn my own salvation. I didn't save myself, but I did respond to the call of God when I heard the truth of the gospel. I also responded when God awoken in, awoke in me the innate stamp of his existence that was in my soul since I was born, my conscience, the law of God imprinted on my heart and the word of God came and triggered that and made it alive and allowed me through the clarity of the gospel and the Bible and the Holy Spirit to illuminate and see that and to feel conviction and understand what the solution was and God working in my heart. So it wasn't me and God saved myself together. God saved me. He is the savior. God ordains the ends by which we are saved, but God also ordains the means by which we will be saved. And the means are the gospel, the Holy Spirit, where we are in life, people he uses to bring you the gospel. It's amazing. It is a miracle. It is a mystery. It will never be resolved in this lifetime. Theologians try to battle and argue about it all of the time. But those truths are corollary, and they stand side by side. God elects people to salvation, and people have to repent and believe in order to be saved. And you cannot be saved apart from believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is clear. So that, that sentence is just absolutely amazing in verse 48 salvation and the word of the lord as a result was being spread through the whole region so notice the emphasis there isn't and christians were spreading throughout the whole region but the word of the lord was spreading that's kind of a neat metaphor that the priority was not humans the priority wasn't human testimony or human words or human. it was the truth of the bible and and the gospel going out that god was blessing and spreading To others that they might be saved the word of the lord was being spread through the entire region of galatia and that's why paul could write Two years later a book called galatians and that book is to a lot of people in that region And he he talks to them like their spiritual father because that's what he was Salvation even though there's criticism rejection and even persecution Many times God brings salvation as a result. Sometimes it's the remnant. Sometimes it's the minority that gets saved. Apparently here, it could have been the majority of those eventually who heard. Full-on revival. Salvation. A reaction to the gospel. Number five, what's another reaction? Well, you got criticism. It usually starts out with criticism. First, it's a thought or it's uh, gossip behind your back. That's where it starts. And then they encourage one another and become bold. And then they start confronting you to your face. And then when that's emboldened and the, uh, the flames are fanned, then it can turn into persecution. It can even ultimately turn into physical persecution. And that's the case here. So that's number five, a reaction to the gospel persecution. The gospel incites sin. The gospel stirs up the pot. The gospel stirs up sin. Sin must manifest itself. Sin must come out. Sin must be revealed for what it is. And it will. Forces the issue. Verse 50. So there's a revival, but, again, the but, the contrast, but the Jews. The Jews who had great jealousy. The Jews who blasphemed God. The Jews who insulted insulted Paul and Barnabas. The Jewish leadership of the synagogue, no doubt. But the Jews incited the devout women of prominence. So there were influential Gentile ladies in the town. They ran the show. They were the movers and shakers. Maybe they had wealth and property and influence and uh, influential fathers and uncles. This was true of some of these Roman pagan colonies. Well, that's the way it was here. Just go and talk to the right influential movers and shakers. Win them over with a bribe. Win them over with a promise. Win them over with a threat. Win them over with... Whatever. And they were won over, these influential women, Gentile women, who probably maybe were married to influential men. And so the Jews incited, created a mob, created resistance, starting with these devout women of Providence and the leading men of the city who were not enthusiastic at all, who were threatened by Christianity. And so they instigated a persecution. So this is formal. This is organized. They talked. They had a plan. Here's how we're going to do it. We're going to shut them down. We're going to chase them out of town. And this is one we're going to meet. Ready, break. This is organized. They instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas. And they were successful. They drove them out of their district. It is significant here that Paul didn't stay and resist. You know, put them up. Let's fight. No, you can't. You can't kick me out. We outnumber you now. Nope. Paul is being led by the Spirit of God. God wanted Paul and Barnabas to move on. I've got other work for you. Now is not the time. I don't want you to die now. I've still got 20 years of you for you to do ministry. This is not the time. There's a time to run and there's a time to stay. Early on in Jesus' ministry, he ran. He ran, he ran, he hid, he hid. When the three and a half years was up and he knew it was time to die, he ran no more. Offered himself, go ahead, arrest me. I'm here to die. This is being in tune with the Spirit of God. Paul and Barnabas are in tune with the Spirit of God and this is evidence of... Of it, but this is persecution. This is now getting physical. We are going to, we're going to drag your body out of town. You have no rights here, which was a lie. This was, Antioch of Pisidia was a Roman colony and Paul was a Roman citizen with all rights and privileges at his availability. He could have invoked the law. He didn't here. He does in Philippi. He does in Jerusalem. He is in tune with the Spirit. God's plan. Okay, well, this door is closed. Apparently, God's going to open another door, and God does. So there's the persecution. 51 to 52, another reaction. By the way, persecution has been going on for 2,000 years towards Christians, and it will continue to do so. That is our calling. And then finally, redirection. When God does shut a door, He opens another door for a Christian who is in tune with the Spirit, obedient and willing to find out where God wants them to be redirected to. By the way, that's how God spreads truth many times is through a negative thing. Or through, that's how the gospel spread the first time to Samaria. Remember that? So the word of God and the gospel and all the believers, they were in Jerusalem, huddled in Jerusalem, and just, and staying there for years and it wasn't going out beyond Samaria and the borders then God had to bring persecution death and then whoosh, they scattered and with scattering they brought the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth so God uses persecution to spread his truth God uses persecution for good this is Romans 8:28 right for the Christian God works all things together for good for basically believers even bad things bad things aren't good but he uses bad things to accomplish Is good in the end and that's what happens here Uh, verse 51 they are redirected and off the new ministry but they shook off the dust of their feet paul and barnabas they got them okay fine all right we will not resist we will comply we will go let me get my things we know how to get out of here so in obedience to the command of jesus in the in the gospel of luke what paul uh jesus told his disciples go door to door tell people about me and when you get resistance defiant resistance End it. That's futile to go on. End it. Leave. And as a sign, shake the dust off of your feet. And it was a physical sign of judgment. You know what? You've got the truth now. You're accountable for it. God is your judge. And I no longer have anything to do with you shaking the dust off their feet. So they shook the dust off of their feet in protest. So that was literally a physical sign they were doing. This is not just a metaphor for what they were thinking. I mean, literally, so those fellow Jews, they knew what it meant, shaking the dust off their feet. And they headed to the next city, 85 miles away to the east, and that's the city of Iconium, still in Asia Minor, still in Galatia, and that's the next place God wants them to preach his word of God so that his gospel continues to spread. God redirects so that his message might spread and grow and give more people an opportunity to hear truth. So Paul and Barnabas, they're off. And those who stayed behind, the disciples, maybe you can kick the word of God through the, the missionaries out of town, but you can't kick the gospel out of town. The gospel is still there. There are people who got saved. Verse 52, the disciples were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit, filled, so, which is a sign of true salvation, being born again. They are now filled with joy. Probably for the first time in their life, and they are filled with the Spirit of God. And for hundreds of years, the church thrived in Galatia. They couldn't stamp it out, Satan couldn't snuff it out. That's because the gospel is the most powerful reality in our world. Well, with that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Before we do, just a, a reminder, we do have a benevolence offering today, which is if you have extra change or extra money you've been thinking about, uh, it meets practical needs here at the church. And so our people have needs that arise that maybe they can't afford a spontaneous car goes bad or they need gas or hospital bill, doctor bill they can't pay. And you've been incredibly generous for 10 years. We've been able to meet the needs of our saints in that way. So it's a very special Designated fund. We call it the benevolence offering. So we will take that as we have our last song. But let me go ahead and pray for us and thank God for our time together. Father, we do thank you for a day of worship and to be with the saints. Again, we thank you for the treasure of your word. And the truth of the gospel that changes lives, Father, all of us who are saved and have been changed by you, we thank you. Thank you, Jesus, for being our Savior. Thank you for ongoing forgiveness of sin. Help us to be like Paul and Barnabas as we interact with those that don't know you, that we would be bold and yet uh, compassionate, just with the proper balance, and in the end, trusting you for the results. And we pray all this for your glory in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.